1: I mean, no one plans to get sick. And yet, here we are. My name is Matthew Zachary. A quarter century ago, I was given six months to live with a diagnosis of terminal brain cancer. For more than 15 years, I've been ranting and raving on the air about stupid cancer and now stupid healthcare. And I'm just getting warmed up. So let's all go make healthcare suck less together because you know what? We're all out of patience. Hey, that's the name of the show. Hello, friends. Welcome back to Out of Patients. On the show today, I welcome Claire Mashalette, who I've known for quite a long time. She was diagnosed with ALL in the 1990s, the same year as me. And we were borough mates, 100 blocks apart. I was at Sloan. She was at Columbia. And it somehow just took 20 years for us to meet in person. She was on the Stupid Cancer Show many, many years ago, and we've never lost touch. I just wanted to have her on the show because she's got such an incredible story to tell. But she's also indicative and representative of a huge systemic problem in healthcare, which just writ large is that when you enter the shit happen store, the cancer store, the rare disease store, who's going to help you? Who protects you? And does the hospital you go to have your interests at heart? Who's going to help you negotiate your insurance reimbursement claims or your benefits packages with your employer? You need a Sherpa. You need someone to hold your hand and walk you through it. And that is exactly what she does. She runs an organization called Claire, the Cancer Sherpa. Prepare yourself for a great conversation with an incredibly funny human being, Claire Mashalot. Let's get started. Adios mio. Here we go. Clutch your pearls, rosaries (laughs) around. Claire (laughs) Mashalot, finally. Welcome to Out of (laughs) Patience.
2: I am so happy to be here.
1: Well, yeah, because this episode is sponsored by How the Fuck Are We Still Alive?
2: I'm not sure who knows. I'm not even sure God knows. I think that, you know, we've just looked in the face enough times and said, eh, we're not going anywhere.
1: You put your foot on the ground. You say, can I not die yet? And hopefully something goes right. And you and I were diagnosed in the fabulous Clinton administration era of the early 90s. And good for us, I suppose.
2: Yeah. While well, you were down at Sloan Kettering, I uh, was just a couple of years younger up um, Manhattan Island at 168 in Fort Washington. It used to be Columbia Presbyterian. Several iterations ago. And I had high-risk acute lymphocytic leukemia, specifically lymphoblastic, if that gets any cheers from anyone. And I was treated from 94 to about 97. Uh, it was a two-year protocol, but you always have a bunch of stuff to stick around for after the fact, including your port and all that jazz. So had there been cell phones or texting or even walkie-talkies that went that far. We would have been friends.
1: I love to help our listeners understand that we've really come so far from 25, 26, 27 years ago, and yet we have all new fabulous problems today that we didn't even have back then. Like you kind of just died. We got lucky in the 80s and 90s. And today it's easier than ever to either not get cancer or deal with cancer. Still major asterisks attached to that because we're going to get into everything you do. Because that is kind of what you do. <laughs> but l- let's talk about what we didn't have in the 90s for perspective. Did you have any peer support? Did you have any sense of here's a teenager with cancer? We should connect her with other teenagers with cancer.
2: Uh, so, no, it was funny because I was listening to one of your podcasts, of course, and you were talking about rainbows and sunshines. And, you know, you are 21, which I'm sure you loved being in a pediatric outpatient and inpatient. Columbia was slightly different. It looked a little bit more like a Greyhound bus stop. We had child life, um, but it, it was slightly different. But we had great doctors and great nurses. So we had to not only make our own friends among each other, you know, be our own support. And this will tell you something compared to like the amazing numbers today. But like I was in a 18 kid chemo class. So we were three months To just over 20 years. And there were 18 of us, all different types of cancer, but I was the only one that survived. Not even long term, just inside of therapy, and then maybe directly after. So we didn't have a lot. There was zero peer support. There was very little therapy, you know, no recognition of long-term issues. Like as my nurse practitioner to this day says, like, it's not over till it's over. And I'm sure you've experienced tons and tons of secondary effects.
1: What are those? Tell me more.
2: (laughs) Well, let's see. How many do you want to hear and how long do we have? So I went to college kind of right after I was treated. And in college, I ended up getting West Nile because my boyfriend and I took our dogs down to the river near college. And, you know, everybody got the same mosquito bites. He was fine because he had a regular immune system. We were 22. And of course, I got West Nile because I had no immune system had that, ended up getting blood clots. I mean, there's just, I always joke that cancer is the gift that keeps on giving because it may be gone, but like I now, and you've experienced this in many of our meetings, have ADD because I had cranial radiation and I never had that ever. I mean, I have a very hard time not interrupting and, you know, attention to begin with, but not ADD. And so if it, just things like that.
1: And you could listen to Claire's podcast called Squirrel.
2: <laughs> exactly. Shiny object.
1: Yes. One of the best selling T-shirts we had at Stupid Cancer in the e-commerce heyday of the late 2000s said white cells are for losers.
2: (laughs) So true. Like I was actually saying the other day to my nurse practitioner, my doctor who been to my wedding are just amazing people. Talk to them all the time. I got a CBC just because I was getting a checkup and I can read it up and down. And I go, my hemoglobin was above 14. It's a freaking miracle.
1: (laughs) I know. I know. (laughs)
2: But white blood cells are for losers. I mean, who, you know, the thing is, if you can survive without them, you know, you may be neutropenic, but, you know, you're cool.
1: It's <laughs> <laughs> just, just a dark perspective we have. It's like the right kind of macabre <laughs> approach to stoic cynicism with a cockout optimism.
2: True. And I literally was just like. Hey, the one thing about neutropenia that none of us wanted to deal with, but has prepared us so well for the pandemic is trying to entertain ourselves for hours stuck in our house. Right. When we couldn't see anybody else.
1: Yeah, there's nothing so. the like isolation in a hospital to prepare for a pandemic in 20 years. <laughs>
2: exactly. Just what you're looking forward to. Those are the skills you really want that are in a zombie apocalypse. So, you
1: know, what was it like for you to get through the end of the millennium?
2: I felt like I was the weird cancer girl at school. I don't really want to be that in high school. So if I compete academically and I do that, like at least like that's how I will have friends. Nobody's gonna acknowledge this. So I didn't really acknowledge any of that till I hit college. You know, we'd have the light the night and all of that stuff. And it's like my friends be like, no, you're over here. I'm like, no, I'm actually in the survivor tent. Like, thanks so much. And so it was that type of stuff that I started really getting into. I was always very active with my hospital. I was always very active with hole in the wall. So that hole in the wall that Paul Newman started in Ashford, Connecticut, and now has a huge network of camps was really where I started to meet kids that lived and that like I could talk to and see. And I still in my like, you know, agedness go and polar bear swim is painful because I'm real old and the college kids can do that stuff. But I volunteer generally like one session and I've been doing it remotely the last couple of years. But I really had no one. And it felt incredibly lonely. I mean, you've experienced this. Like, there are just times it's incredibly lonely. And especially just because my friends around me hadn't made it. But I remember after graduating college and being home one day, and this this flyer came for me. And it was they'd started doing follow-up and teen groups and stuff. And it said, let's talk about sex. Oh, dear. And it was just like, well, a little late.
1: <laughs> yeah, too late. Too little, too late.
2: <laughs> I was like, I don't think you want me in this. I don't think I'm the right peer group. But like... You know, finally, there'd been some recognition. I really had to find it later in life. And that was really, really hard. Like, I actually found out about you from a peer that I was in graduate school with. And I literally was like, oh, my God, somebody does this and not only does this, but it's cool and like gets mad. You know, I was always angry. Don't get me wrong. But like there wasn't a collective group of us. It was always just sort of whoever needed help at the time. And I happened to be able to help.
1: I was surprised one day in 2002 when some guy was like, Hey, Matt, I want to know you. I'm like, Who are you? His name was Craig, Craig Lustig. He's one of my best friends. And he was another kid that had brain tumor in his 20s and the idea of a 20 something like me who had it and is out of the woods even more than I was I didn't know I could have a peer until like seven years after my diagnosis and that's when I really wanted to make sure it sucks a whole lot less for the next us
2: totally I mean like there there are no words like truly I'm struggling and you know me I never struggle to speak to anybody at any time but I think When I first got diagnosed, my initial reaction, like within hours of finding out, was like, don't tell anyone. And that has completely changed. And I think, you know, what people need to understand, too, is there were no St. Jude's commercials. There was nothing. Like, child cancer was like this awful thing that made people sad that nobody talked about. And by the way, 21, not really fair to be included. But technically, I guess pediatric cancer technically goes to 23. I know at least in my hospital it did. And I always thought that like the older kids were super cool. I'm sure they were just like, oh my God, who is this annoying 12 year old? But one of my favorite things to do and what my hospital eventually did was send the families of people whose kids were diagnosed and they talked to my parents and to me. So at least there was somebody, I always say, if you know exactly what's coming, like it's much easier to overcome. And I think that's in some ways, the beauty of protocols that they have like a one month stint, a three month stint. And so- Yeah, I mean, we try to make it suck so much less, but I also think it's also just putting it in the sunlight, right? Like you being out there beating the drum, saying this is real, like let's stop pretending it's not. Let's not be ashamed to advocate for ourselves and ask doctors questions and challenge the healthcare system because guess what? They're human like us. They are not deities. That took a long time for me to learn. But yeah, I mean, like you're allowed to question them because they're doing their job and they're very good at it, but like they're not always right and right for you.
1: So when I met Craig... One of the things that we discussed over lunch, he said to me, how would you like to be a cancer advocate? My response was, what the fuck is a cancer advocate? (laughs) Did you have that experience in any way, shape or form?
2: It is actually really funny that you asked me that. And like, there's no way you could possibly have known that. I went to college and I purposely didn't study anything having to do with like really hard science and maths, you know, and because I knew I probably would go back into healthcare, but I needed to try something different. I was political science and African studies and studied in South Africa. Like it doesn't get much different than, hey, let's go do pre-med and apply right away. And so I literally got out of college and I was like, all right, well, what am I going to do? And my oncologist of all people at the time said, you know, you should be a patient or cancer advocate. And I was just like, well, that sounds boring. And honestly, in my mind, it sounded ineffectual because if those people were making headway, wouldn't I know about them? Right. Do you know what I mean? Like, wouldn't I have heard about them? Would I not have had one? And so I was like, well, that doesn't sound like, you know, anything that's going to be like fun, interesting or, you know, whatever. So sounds like you listened. I wish I had.
1: Well, he gave me an answer. You can't stop it from happening to an ex-person, but you can do your best to make sure it's a whole lot less horrible when they go through it. I'm like, I'm in. What do I do?
2: If that had been presented to me, I would have been like, sign me up. (laughs) How do I do that?
1: And down the rabbit hole, we went. We'll be right back with Claire Mashalette.
0: CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car.
1: All right, Claire, we're back and I want to touch on what we've been alluding to basically the whole time, which is that, you know, advocates aren't born, we're kind of made when shit happens to good people. And I love that, you you know, your immune system in West Now go to South Africa, why not? But I want to talk about how you actually did that, which makes people a global citizen. You get a perspective outside the borders of one country. What did you learn by meeting universes unknown to most in the United States?
2: Okay, so I have sort of a two-part answer for this. The first is that everybody in my mother's side of the family, and even parts of my father's side, live to be 98, 100, 103. Like, even the men live to be 96. And so it never occurred to me, no matter how sick I was, that I wasn't going to sort of get to one of those marks. It was definitely part rebellion hindsight, like I didn't get to rebel as a teenager. I was in chemo. I literally came home my sophomore year and said to my parents, go to South Africa because I'm, I'm dyslexic. And so learning another language is painful. And my parents were like, where are you going, London? And I was like, South Africa. And my mother goes, no, you're not. And my father goes, let's check with the State Department. <laughs> um, you know, it was literally the answer I got. And so the good news is my parents have really good friends from Joburg and they said, absolutely let her go. And I had an amazing time. But one of the things I did is my mother got me vaccinated to the hilt. Whatever I needed, I got. And then everything that extended all the way up, probably the African continent, but I had always, since I was a kid, long before I got sick, loved Nelson Mandela, had always wanted to go. I went with students from all over the United States. And we lived in a township right outside of Cape Town called Longa. And we lived with families. And we had to learn to speak Kosa, so I can speak the same language that Nelson Mandela grew up speaking in his tribe, which is you know, super convenient because only one part of South Africa speaks that. That's no, neither here nor there. And what was amazing is you got to see the love life centers that the Gates did, educating teenagers and young adults and even kids about HIV and AIDS. And it was an amazing after school program, computers, everything. But you'd see these kids at these love life centers with very basic runny noses, coughs, things that in this country just don't happen because you take a kid to the pediatrician and, you know, you get an antibiotic, you get Robitussin and you're on your way. Whereas these kids had had it for months and, you know, just teaching kids how to wash their hands. That was my first exposure really to public health. And so that's sort of how I got into all of this, you know, almost back door from studying in South Africa and avoiding trying to be in medicine.
1: <laughs> right. Well done. <laughs> <I don't know. laughs>
2: I know. I was like, I was hell bent on not doing cancer, and yet here we are. So,
1: and you worked in the healthcare system too, so you learned a whole lot about that sausage too.
2: Oh, yeah.
1: Can you point to two specific things that you're still face palming about?
2: People are stronger than they know, and they are afraid to challenge their doctor because they're afraid that it'll put them at the back of the line. They're afraid that they will offend their doctor. They are afraid. So I think the idea that healthcare absolutely perpetuates is that the doctor is right, you are wrong, you need to do it our way, and you know, just really hope you get good care because that's just how it works. A face bombing that. B the consistency of care, uh, specifically in cancer. I had an experience as an adolescent, as a teenager, and my care all the way through, whether it was radiation, you know, surgery, all of that stuff was very cohesive. Whereas for adults, and it is tragic because these people are sick. They're trying to maintain their jobs and insurance. Nothing is together. Nothing makes it easier for them. Even parking lots are far away. Like There is no cohesive, cogent thoughtfulness, unless you're going specifically to a cancer hospital, like MD Anderson, basically, it's just sort of like every man for himself. And I that just gets me every time we could go over insurance and other stuff. But those are my two sort of big eh.
1: No one ever asks to get sick, which means we're not really pre-researching having to shop at a store we never wanted to be in. You're kind of screwed because you're at the mercy of other people who have different agendas for you, right? So who is supposed to protect that American citizen in the I don't want to be here store? So the easy answer is no one. We are
2: not a preventative healthcare system. We are a bandage as as well as we can, the sick people model. And so what I literally do every day, and I joke that you and I are sort of like the poster children for the club in high school that no one ever wanted to join. And so you're just like, yeah, you're smiling and you're like, but no one wants to be here. I am a term that my friend Jay came up with, a cancer Sherpa. And what that is, is literally a cancer patient advocate. And what I do every day is fight the man, And there's lots of men, by the way, and and they all are terrible. (laughs) And so, so, you know, I do everything from helping people who need a second opinion, third opinion, eighth opinion, people who generally I get a lot of I listen to my doctor. I did this. It didn't work or I don't like it. Like, how do I get a different doctor? How do I change it? And I do everything from setting up acupuncture appointments to fighting with insurance companies. When you are sick, you need to concentrate on getting better. And being an advocate for yourself is a whole other job. And so technically what I always say is, I want to make my job obsolete. I want to do this for you. I want to fight for you while you are getting better. And once you are well enough and you learn to advocate for yourself, you don't need me anymore. You go and you can do this. And I think what every person doesn't see, especially when they're sick and they're scared, is that this is inside of them. They can do it. It's just they need someone to teach them. Who doesn't? That's literally what I do every day from scheduling carpools. Because one of the things you definitely know about is when you first get sick, everybody's there, brings a casserole, does it. Three months in, it's like, okay, my kid needs to be picked up from soccer practice. Or I don't need casseroles. I actually need this type of healthy food to help me with this or whatever it might be. That's just the stuff no one thinks about. Another, you know, smashing forehead palm moment. So...
1: Right. So yeah. this episode, clearly not sponsored by casseroles, but I want to talk about how uh, <laughs> you know, people in your line of work, there's lots of different terms for them. Obviously, this board certified patient advocate, there's cancer Sherpa. There's a- another word that's kind of anathema, like concierge service. But the way I've explained this to people when I'm on stage or whatever, the schoolhouse rock version of this all goes back to the movie, The Incredibles. And It's the opening scene where he's in the insurance company where he works and this poor old lady comes to ask him about some issues she's having with paying for things and he feels bad for her and he tells her all these super secret loopholes, don't go here and don't do this and don't do that. But it wound up being how she was able to get through the system and not have to pay anything and then of course – He gets fired for doing the right thing, working for a company that was supposed to fuck over this poor woman. And you are basically Mr. Incredible in that role, telling people exactly what they should do to get through the loopholes or forcing the people who are making their lives suck to back off.
2: There's a funny story for like when I was being treated, my mom about six months in went to my doctor and said, you know, she's just so angry. And he's like, that's a good thing. Like, (laughs) that's going to help her get where she needs to go. And I have the same anger for everybody else. It is small things, literally, and it is huge things, you know, whether it is having to appeal eight times to an insurance company. And I think what's so interesting is I have done this forever. I remember I was a sophomore at Duke and I got a phone call in my dorm room and a classmate of mine's aunt was on the phone and I pick up and she's like, You could tell she was just very upset. And she's like, you know, Jennifer said to call you like, you know what to do. I just was diagnosed with this. And so that's kind of where it started. But yeah, I mean, it's just something that is second nature to you and me. And it's funny because my husband has said this, like you and I know how to do this just because we've been in the bowels of hospitals and the healthcare system forever. But like you forget that when you are a healthy person that all of a sudden finds out one day that you are not like, why on earth would you know anything from this store that you now not only have to shop from, but like fight for certain things like toilet paper in the pandemic? Like it's miserable.
1: Hiring someone, a consultant per se, outside the healthcare system to navigate you through the waters to represent you and your interests to the healthcare sector is a privileged opportunity that most people can't afford. It speaks to me in two different ways. One, it is going to cause a narrative around the separation of haves and have-nots, but it also is just another shiv in the kidneys of the system that shouldn't be this way.
2: Totally. And so, like, the reason I started my company is because I actually was going to start it as a nonprofit. But where I live in California, you don't want to do a nonprofit because you can't pay people who work with you (laughs) what they need, according to the IRS and everybody else, um, in order to live here and work. And so they're, like, started as a company and have nonprofit arm. And so we work with people at all levels, what they can pay, if they can pay. We work with everyone because as you know, it is a have and have nots. And when you brought up the concierge, it was so interesting to me because that's exactly what I chose not to do. Because if I'm at one great healthcare system, like we have a bunch here in San Francisco, a bunch in New York, a bunch in Chicago. like If I'm at one hospital and we are treating you for, say, some type of cancer, but then you develop a need for surgery. And literally down the street is the best surgical center for that thing in the world. As a concierge, you are generally trying to keep that patient at your hospital for money reasons. And that's like why I couldn't do it. And I I just was like, you know what, I want people to go where they need to be, where they're going to get the best care. And that was sort of one of the reasons I sort of had to start this. And it took me years, like from the day Jay was like, wow, you're like a cancer Sherpa to me incorporating it, by the way, in January of 2020, fun times. It was about five years because it's like, how do we do the pay model? How do we do this? And the answer is you do it until it works and you help people. Like I am not looking to be a tech startup. I'm a born and bred San Franciscan, lived on the East Coast a long time. But I'm not out to be a billionaire. I'm out to make myself obsolete and help people. And so if they can pay, great. And if they can't, we'll figure it out. But I think, like you said, you don't want it to be a haves and have-nots. And concierges and other advocates generally are something that people who have the ability pay for.
1: So I'm going to equate you to a balance of Jason Bourne, Liam Neeson, Atomic Blonde, the Black Mamba, all four characters. <laughs> <laughs> are what you do. And listeners, if you don't get the reference, go Google those names. Claire Mashalat is the founder and CEO at Cancer Sherpa Inc., which you can visit today, right now at Claire, that's C-L-A-R-E, clairethecancersherpa.com. Any final thoughts? Any final comments, Claire?
2: Cancer is tough, but so are you. You are able to be your own advocate. You just need people like Matthew and I to help you figure out how to get there.
1: Sold American. Claire, thanks so much for coming in Out of Patience.
2: (laughs) Thank you so much for having me.
0: That's all for now. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Tell us what you'd like Matthew to cover in his next episode by leaving a message for us at 855-AUDIO-66, and we might just use it in a future show. Out of Patients is a product of Offscript Health. We are a healthcare engagement company built for patients and caregivers by patients and caregivers. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our senior producer is Betsy Shepard. Our host is Matthew Zachary. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Betsy Shepard. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscriptnot.com. That's media at offscript.com. For more information, visit offscript.com.